Turn in your Bibles, please, uh, to 1 Kings chapter 18. It's a famous passage, full of action, um, and um, it's a story that's been told many times, a true story. Um, and it never uh, wears out in its impact on the lives of men and women, boys and girls. Um, can I just uh, add another prayer point for India? Um, it came to my attention during the week that there was in the state of Chattisgarh, uh, we support a man in Chattisgarh. Um, a group of Hindus have got together and they have vowed that they will um, not provide any service to any Christian. That includes public transport, that includes provision of food or any service. Um, it reminds me of those who vowed that they wouldn't eat until they'd killed Paul. Um, some of these uh, vows can be, uh, shall, I, shall I say, they backfire on the people who make them. And uh, we know that God can overrule those sorts of situations, but we need to uphold um, our brother um, I'll name him Pradeep um, and others there are others that we would be um, familiar with in terms of they're connected with uh, uh, the uh, ministry of GS Naya they are there in that state as well so um, we need to uphold those people in prayer and having said that um, let's pray um, and if you uh, Bear with me, I will pray for those people right now, but we'll also pray for the ministry of the word. Heavenly Father, we do uh, think of our brothers and sisters in Christ, in particularly in the state of Chattisgarh right now in India, and we pray that you will um, uphold them, uh, provide for them, protect them, help them to stand. And uh, our message tonight is uh, very much about standing uh, for God. And uh, so we pray, Lord, that uh, you will work in our hearts, work in my heart right now. May there be no distractions, no interruptions uh, to the word of God, either within or without. And uh, we pray that if there is anyone who doesn't know Christ as their saviour, uh, tonight will be the night where they stand upon Christ, stand upon the foundation of uh, a finished work, that's of redemption, that's been done for them. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you look back over your life, um, can you see times when God has obviously worked in your life? Um, I can give you two examples, probably more, but I'll just settle for two from my life. Um, And it relates to uh, my uh, relationship with Julie. And uh, as you know, Julie comes from Beth Shan. That's where she grew up. Mum and Dad were uh, on staff there. And uh, she spent her whole childhood there. And it was a happy childhood. She's got lots of happy memories there. Um, 
when we were starting to get to know one another, um, I mentioned that to my mother and I mentioned where she came from and my mother replied with, I've been there. Now, if you knew my mother, um, that to me was a shock. She said something that even shocked me even more. She said, I was baptised there. At that point, you could have blown me over with a feather. All right? Because my mother's uh, testimony and life did not match up with what I just heard. And so we decided, I thought, she's, she's, got to get, she's got to be confused with some other place. You know, it's some other campsite that she's been to. Anyway, uh, next time that Julie and I were there, we mentioned this to Brother Graham Mitchell, um, who was at that time the manager of um, Beth Shan. He said, there's one way to find out. And he took us to the office. There was a, a book with a record of, of baptisms. And uh, the previous, the original book had been destroyed um, and ruined, but they had copied names into this new book. And there on page one was my mother and my uncle. My mother was brought back to Beth Shan um, by, shall I say, circumstances, because that's where we got married. And I think, you know, God works in people's lives to remind them of where they have had contact with the gospel when they've drifted away and well, maybe even totally rejected. God has this way of, of just going, bing, remember, you've got no excuse. The other one where God worked in our life, again, relates to uh, Julia. I've got her permission to say this. Um, we were getting to the stage where I think we were even engaged at this stage and we were talking, you know, what's in your family, what's in my family, all that sort of stuff. All young people, engaged couples do that sort of thing because you want to know what you're going to have. <laughs> you want to know what's down the track. And we were talking on the phone. We weren't face-to-face. This was on the phone. And Julie had... Um, she was a midwife and she had brought into the world several babies, quite a few babies. And she was actually talking about the, some of the signs that uh, babies with Downs have. And she said, they're very good thong wearers. Um, they're good at wearing thongs. And she said, uh, one of the other signs is what she, she's using old terminology. So any medical people here, you know, I'll, I'll clarify in modern terms in a minute. Um, she said they have bilateral uh, simians creases. And I said, what's that? She said, if you bend your finger, bend your hand, okay, you know the creases that are on your hand, one will go that way, one will go the other way, that's normal. Um, simians creases is where the crease goes right across. And I did that, and the crease went right across. I said, well, mine's gone right across. And she said, 
yeah, it might be on one hand, but it can't be on two. So I went to the other hand and I said, mine's gone on the other side as well. It's gone all the way across. And she said, no, no, you must be making a mistake. You don't know what you're looking at. Next time she came, we were together. I showed her my palms and um, the, look on <laughs> the look on her face um, was, shall I say, uh, a bit worrying. So uh, we went to the doctor and we got an, a, uh, an appointment with a specialist. At that time, I'm driving hire cars. Okay, now, if you're looking online and you're from overseas and you don't exactly know what that means, it's not a taxi. A hire car is not where you can pick up people from the street or from some taxi rank. Okay, you are given a job and that's the job you do and you don't go soliciting anything else. And our company had a major contract with the federal government. And uh, so we would do all sorts of jobs. We would, we would pick up veterans from Concord Hospital, which was a veterans hospital at that time, and take them to the airport, take people home, help various government uh, bureaucrats get, uh, you know, get a lift to the airport for the day or bring them home at the end of the day. Um, I tended to get uh, politicians, some politicians who would be um, prime ministers, I never got the prime ministers, or some that were, well, one, that was a prime minister and was very, very old at that time. And also other people who were doing government contract work. The Friday before my medical appointment, I get this job, and I, you get your jobs on a piece of paper. And I looked at it, and I saw Dr. Sillance. I thought, you're kidding. I never had him before, and I never had him after. But he was the one, and he got, on, I got him at the airport. He got in the car. I'm driving along, taking him. He said, I want you to take me, first of all, to the hospital. And my appointment was at Westmead Hospital. What hospital do you want to go to? Westmead. Okay. And I'm waiting for the right moment to bring this up. Okay. So I'm driving along and I said, um, on Monday, are you going to be in Clinic B? He goes, yes. 10.30? Yes. I'll see you there. <laughs> and uh, I explained that I was going to have an appointment with him. And he said, well, maybe we could have the consultation now. It might save you some money. So we went through the story, okay? And he told me what to do, and we, the, the appointment went ahead. And basically at the end of it, on, at the end of the uh, consultation, his answer was, we medical people know too much, okay? But what I want to... The point of that story is that... Of all times, I picked up that guy and, of, you know, he came just before that appointment. And as I said, I've never had him since. God works in our lives. 
And we can see him working. If you really want to look for it, you can see him working uh, in your life. Our story tonight deals with a man in the Old Testament who, at a point when he had uh, a very important job to do, probably needed to look back and see God working in his life and see what God had done in the past. A little bit of background. We're talking about um, the nation of Israel when it split from Judah. So there were now two kingdoms, what we refer to as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the first king of the now breakaway northern kingdom was a fellow by the name of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he led Israel into great idolatry, great wickedness. And the northern kingdom was not really a stable kingdom at all. It had plenty of problems. First of all, there was Jeroboam and his son. Okay? Um, and then that dynasty got chopped off. All of Jeroboam's lineage got wiped out, as God had predicted. And the guy who did that was a fellow by the name of Baasha, and he was the son of Ahijah. He had a son who then ruled after him. His name was Elah. He got the chop. The guy who did that was the name of, was a fellow called Zimbri. He didn't even live long enough to have kids. Okay, he got the chop. And he was cut off by a fellow by the name of Omri. Now, Omri was also an honorary sort of a fellow. No, I don't mean honorary, I mean ornery. And he had a son by the name of Ahab. Most of us know who Ahab was. He was a dirty dude. He was a dirty dude. Okay. And when you look at that point, up to this point in, his, in the Israel's history, Ahab was the seventh king. There had been four dynasties so far. And Jeroboam's reign began when the nation was only 62 years old. You stop and think, we've just um, buried a queen whose reign was 70 years. One queen. And although that uh, dynasty has had its problems, it was pretty steady all the way through. Israel was a troubled nation. And it brought that trouble upon itself because of idolatry. Okay, And way back in uh, chapter 14 of 1 Kings, a prophet by the name of Ahijah, um, had, or Ahijo, however you want to say it, um, basically prophesied the destruction of the nation of Israel and their dispersion. It was just a matter of time. Ahab was a wicked king who not only led Israel into further idolatry but married uh, a lady called Jezebel who was the daughter of the king of the Zidonians. Now, that was a pagan nation, and Ahab followed her example into worshipping Baal. I mean, Israel is just going down and down and down from a 
a nation that had seen the glory of God and had um, known the blessing of God and they've turned their back on him and the pathway at that point is always down. When you turn your back on God, that's the pathway that you're facing. No matter how um, well you might be financially, no matter how much you might think you're having fun, the pathway is down. In 1 Kings 16, verse 34, there's an interlude. And you might think, well, why is this here? It talks about heel. A fellow who rebuilt Jericho but lost two sons in doing so. Let's go to Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua has led the people. We're talking hundreds of years before Ahab. Hundreds of years. Joshua has led the people into Canaan. The first city that they have to conquer is Jericho. And they do that. The walls fall down. The place is a mess. Okay? And they've, they've uh, had their first victory in the land of Canaan. And, and Joshua, verse 26, adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city, Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was noised throughout all the country. We come back to our time, our passage here. And uh, verse, uh, what did I say, 16, chapter 16. Okay. And in the days of Ahab, there was a fellow by the name of Heel, the Bethelite. He built Jericho. And look what it says. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Zegub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. God keeps his word. It doesn't matter how long ago it was said. God's word doesn't wear out. He keeps his word. And the application for us is that God's word stands. Today, we've got this attitude that the Bible is old, it's fairy tale. It's all the stuff that it's talking about as far as prophecy is concerned and, and judgment. We're past that. That's the modern attitude. Okay? We, we're, uh, we know better than that. We believe in ancestors that were monkeys and scraped their knuckles across the ground and all that sort of stuff. Okay. But God's word stands and it will be fulfilled and it stands no matter how old it may be. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 it says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord, the word of our God shall stand forever. So, Israel is gone down. God has to bring 
the attention of the kings and of the people back to him again. How's he going to do it? Enter into the scene the prophet Elijah, the Tishbite. In First Corinthians, First Kings, chapter seventeen, we read, "And Elijah the Tishbite was, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word." Through the prophet Elijah, God declares there's going to be a drought. And our nation, Australia, has experienced drought. We've had, there was a a point where almost right across the board, we had drought for more than 10 years. And that's devastating. So the declaration is given. And also, God protects the one who gave that declaration. He sent Ahab, sorry, he sent Elijah uh, to the brook Cherith, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, to hide him. Um, And how's he going to live? There's a drought going on. Well, there was water at that time in the brook. And so he would drink water from the brook. And God provided ravens to come in the morning and in the evening and the the bible says it gave him uh, flesh and bread and that was how he was sustained when the brook dried up god sent him to zarephath which is over near zidon so that's gentile country where he had commanded or appointed a widow woman To feed him. God miraculously provided for the widow, her son and Elijah, by not allowing the cruise of oil to dry out and the the meal inside the barrel to to run out. So they had enough to eat and they survived. God showed that he was still in control in another way. The widow's son died. And you might say, well, that's not a lot of comfort, uh, comforting. That's not very comforting. And the widow said, you know, Elijah, have I sinned? Why has this happened? I haven't got a husband. Now my son's gone. Why has this happened? And... God shows that he was working through Elijah again and he was showing Elijah, you can trust me. Let's go to 17, chapter 17, verses 17 to 24. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, what have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? 
And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Let's recap some of Elijah's tests. He prophesied to Ahab of the drought. It came true. God sent him to the brook Cherith to be sustained. It happened. God sent him to Zarephath, Zarephath, where God provided for him and the widow and her son. And it worked. It happened. Elijah trusted the Lord to bring the widow's son back to life, and God did so. This was all preparation for what Elijah was about to face. Proofs that God was the Lord of the elements, that he could provide Elijah's needs, that he was the Lord of the creatures of the earth. Remember, he was the one that brought the ravens. The ravens had to get the food and bring it to Elijah morning and evening every day. And it happened. And that he could and would overcome death. God gives life. Sin brings death. In John 14, verse 6, the Lord Jesus is speaking to Thomas and he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. God brings life. When you put your trust in Christ as Saviour, you have eternal life. Without him, you only have a future of eternal separation from God. And you can call that death. So we come to the showdown on Mount Carmel where Jehovah proves he is God. Now comes the mission that God has been preparing Elijah for. He commands Elijah to show himself to Ahab with a promise that God would break the drought. Verse eight, Chapter 18, verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, for anyone else, that would have been a death sentence because Ahab was looking for him. He wanted to get this guy. And he had sent um, messengers to nations all the way around and they were asking, is Elijah here? No. We want an oath from you. We want an oath that, that you will vow that Elijah is not here. They were serious. They were really looking for this guy. And they couldn't find him because God had was kept on hiding him. And now he says, God says to Elijah, I want you to go and meet Ahab face to face. Where he came across a God-fearing um, servant of Ahab by the name of Obadiah. And Obadiah was petrified with this. He didn't, he didn't want to go through this deal at all because he says, 
If I go to Ahab, the minute I turn my back on you, God's going to whisk you away somewhere to where I don't know. And then when Ahab comes and can't find you, you know what he's going to do to me? That'll be the end of me. Elijah knew that he could trust God. God told him he was going to see Ahab and he knew he was going to see Ahab. And he said, today I will see Ahab. It will happen today. So with that, Obadiah goes off and gets Ahab. God is faithful. That is a basic truth that God wants us all to believe. And the first step of coming to Christ is knowing that God keeps his word. God is faithful. The psalmist could sing, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 89. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When you come to Christ for salvation, the promises that are there, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's not going to say, Oh, I forgot about that one. He's not going to say, I didn't really mean it. God keeps his word. And that is a very important truth that we need to keep in mind when we come to Christ. And as we go on, and sometimes Christians get their, you know, uh, their faith gets a little bit of a shake, we need to remember that God keeps his word. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We can have that assurance because God keeps his word. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, there's some that, whose doctrine that says, oh, uh, that verse doesn't really mean what you think it means. The ones who, the ones who are saved are only of those who have been from eternity past, are selected by God that they are the ones that are going to be saved. Sorry, I'd like to ask the question, what's the definition of not willing that any should perish? What's the word all mean? All means all. And God wants us all to be saved. He doesn't want anybody to be, to be cast into hell. Okay, so you say God does not want one soul to enter hell? How come there is a hell? Why are there so many millions going there? Well, let's go back to our passage for the answer. When the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, prophesied that God would give to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, back in First King, uh, chapter 11, verses 35 to 38, that he would give Jeroboam the tribes of Israel to reign over, except Judah, there was one condition, and that condition is in the verse here. We're going to read it. And I will take thee, verses 37 to 38, 
And I will take thee, and thou shalt reign according to all that thy soul desireth, and shalt be king over Israel. And it shall be, if thou wilt hearken, here's the condition, if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee, and will walk in my ways, and do that is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, that I will be with thee. He's talking to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat that I will be with thee and build thee a sure house as I built for David and will give Israel unto thee. Now, Jeroboam wanted the kingdom part. He wanted the blessing of the prophecy, but he didn't want to keep the condition of trusting in the Lord. We are all born with the same desire to go our own way. Jeroboam wanted to be king, but he turned to idolatry instead of trusting the Lord God Jehovah. We enjoy the blessings that God has given us. We have the abundance of food. We have shelter. We have clothing. We are blessed in so many ways, saved and unsaved. We see the beauty of the world around us and yet we say there is no God. Okay? Uh, I don't want to believe the Bible. I'll believe Charles Darwin. And we turn our back on God, a loving God, a holy God. God who wants us to be with him. But if you don't want God... He's not going to force himself onto you. People go to hell because they don't want God and they don't want to trust in his way of salvation. So you get what you want. You get an eternity without God. And all the while God is saying, come unto me. All ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's stretching out his hands, as it were, calling you to salvation, calling you to repentance. But people don't want it, and that's why people go to hell. It's not because God says, uh, you, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. He doesn't do that. God loves all people and he wants them to be saved. So Elijah had to call sin for what it was. When Ahab went to see Elijah, he did what unbelievers always do or often do. He, played, he blamed Elijah and really he was blaming Elijah's God for all his and the nation's troubles. And Elijah made it clear that it was Ahab's sin and the sin of those before him who had turned away from the true God and had turned to the false gods. That was the reason that the nation was going through what it was going through. People are no different today. We've had disasters in this country, like bushfires and floods, disease. And people say, where's God? Why did God let this happen? Well, there's a very good answer for that. You didn't want God in your government. So you've got um, leaders who don't love God and they make 
rules and regulations and laws that way. You didn't want God in your schools, so you've got a generation of kids who are growing up now who do believe they came from monkeys. I mean, that sounds silly to us, but there are people who really do believe that. You didn't want God in your relationships and you wonder why marriages fall apart. You wonder why we've got a generation of people growing up now who don't even know whether they're male or female. They say nature made a mistake. What they're really saying is, God, you made a mistake. And that's a pretty serious accusation to make to an all knowing and a righteous and holy God who does know what he's doing. People go to hell because they don't want God and so they get what they want. They get a place without God. And even here on this earth, we get a society that doesn't know God. And that's what we're experiencing. So Elijah's answer to Ahab was, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Baalim. You are to blame, Ahab, you and those who have gone before you. Verse 19, he says, Now therefore, send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. And Ahab, like a good little boy, did what Elijah told him to do. Ahab was really a weak, he was a weak king. He did what Elijah told him to do. He did what Jezebel told him to do. He was a mess. And in doing that, he walked right into God's trap. So there they are on the top of Mount Carmel. Ahab, 850 pagan prophets and the people of Israel and the stage is set for the showdown. And the, the whole question is, who really is God? So Elijah challenges the people. And he says, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And what did the people do? Silence. The Bible says they answered him not a word. They knew the truth. They knew there were enough of them there who had lived during the time of King Solomon. They would have been getting on in years, but they would have done it. They knew that the golden calves set up in Dan and in Bethel were false gods. They also knew the, the immorality that had crept into the nation because of this, this false doctrine that they were following. But they kept silent. All too often, people are like that. They know, they've, they've read the Bible, they've, they've listened to what um, maybe the preacher has said. They know that Christ died for them. They know that they can come to him and receive him as their saviour. But they don't. They keep silent. They don't move. They don't say... Yes, they don't say no, but really they are saying no. 
And the issue often is, what is my boyfriend going to think? Or what is my girlfriend going to think? Or what are my folks going to think? Or I'm going to lose my job. Okay, they start working out the consequences of this. And God's answer to that is trust him and let him take care of those situations. Now, I'm sure many of us here could give examples of putting their trust in Christ and suffering for it. But I think you can also testify that God sees you through the suffering. So Elijah says, okay, there's two two sacrifices. Let's have two sacrifices. And he says, let them therefore give us two bullocks. Let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood, but put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under and call ye on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. And Elijah said to the prophets, he gave them first choice, he gave them first go. He said to the prophets of Baal, choose you one bullock for yourselves, dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leapt upon the altar that was made. Now they're getting charismatic. Okay? They're getting, they're just calling out's not good enough. They've got a little bit of drama here. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking or he's pursuing. Or he's in a journey, or peradventure he's he's sleepeth. He's he's having a sleep. And must be awaked. And uh, you know, I remember a, a, an evangelist many years ago said, "Can you can you imagine old Elijah leaning up against the poplar tree, really giving it to him? He was having a good old time watching all this stuff going on." And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And if you think that's an exaggeration, there is a branch of Islam today who, not that long ago, about within a month ago, um, had a memorial of their uh, founder of their particular cult who was killed. And uh, this is what they do. They're all throughout various parts of Europe, even in their own nation, in their own land, and they chant and chant and chant and whip themselves into a frenzy and then start whipping themselves and cutting themselves till the blood gushes out. This is not exaggeration. And it came to pass when midday was past and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening service that there was neither voice nor any answer, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. Now they're into, now they're into uh, Elijah's time. Okay, they've gone past midday. Now they're into his time. 
And Elijah, it's Elijah's turn now. And he says, come near unto me. And I think he did this so that the people could get a little bit closer to where the action was about to happen. This is my, this is my thinking. So that they would get a little bit of the heat, you know, a little bit of uh, physical uh, uh, experience so that they wouldn't forget. And he took 12 stones and built an altar in the name of the Lord. And then he made a trench about the altar and the altar, the wood on top of that. And then the pieces of the bullock for the sacrifice on top of that, but no fire. Then he did something strange. He built, a tr- he dug a trench where well, he had already dug the trench. What he did was he instructed them to fill four barrels with water and pour it on the sacrifice Do it the second time, he said. Do it the third time. And the water, the Bible says, ran about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. Now, if you want something to burn, you don't saturate it with water. Okay? But remember, Elijah's got all these experiences of God working in the past. And he knew that God could do this. And he comes to the point where he prays. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening service that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Asking God to remember what the promises that he's made. You know, you start off the day, uh, lead me not into temptation. You get out and you start to uh, see the way people are dressed and, and the stuff that you see on billboards. And you get to the point where you say, God, I asked you to lead me not into temptation. I know you're going to keep your word because I trust in you. I know you're a God that keeps your word. And that's where you get the victory. When you try and do things in your own strength, you'll fail. But when you rely upon the Lord, he'll give you the victory. So he prayed that prayer. He didn't even have time to step back. He didn't even get to the point where he could say, God, send the fire. Now, I know we've got basically adults here, so I'll ask you adults because I was hoping there'd be some kids who could answer this question. Which way does fire burn? Come on, adults. Up. Thank you. Fire burns up. Watch what happens. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed, first of all, a burnt sacrifice, remember, on top, and the wood and the stones. It's going down the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God showed that he was God. Then the people turned back to the Lord and they said, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
Then Elijah dealt with the prophets of Baal. We won't take time to go into that. And the prophets of the groves. And I want to finish with this. How long are you going to halt between two opinions? By not trusting in Christ, you are saying no to Christ. The scripture says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the day of now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Come to Christ now. Don't delay. Don't sit on the fence any longer. And if you know that you are not saved, or you are not sure where you are going to go when you die, then talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to a, someone who you know. If you're online, you can, you can communicate with us and send emails. We'll answer it. And we'll show you from the scriptures how you can be sure of having your sins forgiven. I pray that we will all learn, if nothing else from this message tonight, that God keeps his word and he can be trusted. He has given us promises of salvation. He will keep his word. Come to him. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. Salvation is a gift, a gift from a loving God to you. I'm going to ask uh, Gilmer if he will come and um, lead us in the final hymn.